Hello and welcome back to the State of Play podcast, hosted by myself, Pep Barisha, and I'm, as usual, joined by my co-host, Matt Santangelo. Matt, how are you doing? Fantastic, actually. What a day for football. I, we're going to get into wow, it. We're gonna, wow, oh, wow, there's wow. a lot to unpack here. Um, but uh, yeah, I woke up to an early um, early Milan start, 6.30 Eastern on the uh, west, uh, East Coast here. Um, so for me, it was uh, it was worth waking up. Obviously, they won two one, so I'm happy right now. Of course, and I got some bonus football, which was uh, wow, <laughs> <That's it. laughs> to say the to least, say. right? Yeah, Derby was, Derby day over here in the UK. Crazy. Aside from the Milan victory, it's just been a crazy day of football, and uh, that's what we want, right? Every time we like the last recording we had, we talked off the international break, and now we're having club football back, and it's it's back better than ever, of course. Yeah, the international break owed us one because we were deprived of things to speak about. Uh, luckily, we had some good guests on, but um, I guess we'll start uh, with the Derby Day in the UK. I, st- I think we started off midday here in the UK, which is kind of the earliest we usually kick off. Um, and it was Chelsea Fulham. Uh, Chelsea ran out 2-0 winners against their local rivals, very local. But um, it's, it's not the biggest London derby, but there was still a little a bit about it especially with Ranieri going back to Chelsea um, the first team he managed in in the UK and it was uh, it was an interesting not too much went on uh, Chelsea went ahead early with Pedro and then uh, finished the game off with uh, a Ruben Loftus-Cheek uh, goal did you see the, the highlights of this one Matt? Briefly yeah I, I caught I was um, I know uh, there was there were so many so many games to, to, to watch today so I, I caught the brief I caught brief highlights of it um, yeah, again, as you mentioned, it looked like it was kind of just a not too crazy of a game. Nothing, nothing, you know, uh, on, on the same level as uh, you know Arsenal, Tottenham, or Liverpool, Everton. But um, yeah, it had some, it had some action to it. Of course, again, Chelsea uh, get a big victory, as you just mentioned with the Ranieri connection there. Um, but no, nothing, nothing too crazy to go on with that. I did see the highlights though. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, particularly after that um, defeat to Spurs. Chelsea really need to bounce back and particularly one player was in the spotlight that was Jorginho who made a fantastic start to the Premier League uh, or his adaptation to the Premier League but in the last couple of games and particularly in big games a lot of people have questioned him so today was a game for him to bounce back on and also for Chelsea I think uh, as any team if you get beaten really badly by one of your rivals which Chelsea were you know well beaten by Spurs you just all you care about is the result really the performance is, is secondary as long as you get those three points on the board I think some Chelsea players today had an absolute stinker I think Marcus Alonso had a woeful game uh, Hazard didn't have his best game Giroud was pretty poor Morata was uh, shockingly bad when he came on um, uh, apart from maybe uh, I think Azpilicueta had a decent game uh, Kepa made a couple good saves but you know Chelsea aren't playing as well as they did at the start of the season, but I don't think it's cause for concern yet for Maurizio Sarri, is it? Well, I think for me, because I, you know, in, uh, during the week I had a conversation with a couple of people on um, on Twitter about uh, Sarri, his system. You know, we've talked about it quite a bit on the podcast as well. Uh, obviously, the four three three it works wonders when it's clicking, it's firing on on all cylinders, but. At some point, again, you know, we were going to have this, and of course, it happened against Tottenham where it was exposed. Um, and really, Chelsea and Sarri couldn't recover. They couldn't adapt to the game, change things up, and ultimately um, make the game a little bit easier on themselves to get kind of get back into it, maybe get a result, or really just finish the game in better fashion. So I think that's something to kind of keep an eye on. Again, of course, with, with Chelsea getting a victory today, that certainly helps. You want to bounce back with a victory, and that's exactly what they did. 
but let's keep an eye on how Sarri is able to kind of navigate through this uh, through the season when these teams. Um, and specifically the bigger ones, see them that second time around, how they adjust, because obviously, you know, Chelsea were off to a great start, as you just mentioned, but then again, in previous weeks, it's been kind of a little bit shakier, not as easy as uh, it was early on in the campaign, so that's just something to keep an eye on, um, how he adapts to the second time around through the teams, um, and when those teams adapt to him, can he make the adjustments in-game with the formations, with the tactics, with the personnel, and all that stuff? Yeah, I I, I wouldn't go as far to say as he's been found out as a lot of people are trying to allude to uh you know sorry balls over blah 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 all that stuff managers are going to go through rough patches it's going to be up and down i mean you see guardiola in his first season it wasn't the prettiest of sights so i think people are being slightly hard on uh maurizio sorry i mean he most of the team he's got right now he inherited i mean he bought in Jorginho, which was a big signing um and he got Kovacic on loan, who isn't like a stellar signing. I wouldn't say he's a game changer. So, you know, he's got you. You need to similarly to Unai Emery and similarly to uh, Jurgen Klopp when he first came to Liverpool and similarly to uh, Pep Guardiola when he first came to Manchester City. You need these. You need to give these guys like two, three, four transfer windows before you can really start judging them. No, I absolutely agree with you. I think again. You know, credit to what Sarri's been able to accomplish thus far. I mean, it's, he hasn't won anything. They haven't clinched anything. But thus far, they've, they've done. he's done extremely well. Again, of course, don't, don't forget the fact that he came in late in the season with all that um, that 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 dispute with him and, and Napoli, you know, kind of letting him be able to go to Chelsea. He really didn't have as much time to work with this, this squad that uh, most managers would joining a team in the summer uh, did. But in any case, he's done well. They're in good position um, at the moment, so they got to like where their, um, their their chances of finishing top four. Again, of course, that's the, uh, the big prize that they can compete for a title. That's a bonus, obviously. Um, but in any case, yeah, I think um, he's not they're not he's not found out per se. But I think again, if you're asking any Napoli fans, asking any Serie A fans, and they would tell you that. Um, the second half of the season, the later part of the season, um, is where we really kind of get an idea of what type of manager he will be for Chelsea. If it's the same old story, same old tricks where he doesn't tinker, he kind of over his players, and then all of a sudden the performances drop, then it's going to be, oh, I told you, so I, I, we saw this coming from a mile away. Or can he make the adjustments necessary, learn from past mistakes, and, and, and ensure that it's not a repeat of last year and really the past few seasons at Napoli where uh, they stuck with the Juventus until, for the title race, but then eventually the last you know month to month and a half, the, the wheels start to fall off. They start to drop points. They look tired. Um, you know, sorry, stubbornness in changing his tactics and his formations accordingly uh, kind of did him in. So I guess we'll have to kind of see how that pans out um, as we go through the season. Yeah, I, I think... Chelsea fans have expected more rotation in the Europa League, especially giving youngsters such as Hudson Odoi a chance. Uh, we've hardly seen anything of Emerson Palmieri in the Premier League, uh, and at the beginning of the Europa League, he didn't really make the team. So I think Chelsea fans want to see a bit more rotation in the Europa League. But you know what? I don't really blame Maurizio Sarri coming into a new team, trying to get to know his players better. Every game kind of matters to him. Uh, but but Matt, we've got two more derbies to uh, contend with here. Otherwise, we're going to go on forever. The next one is the North London derby. Oh, myself being an Arsenal fan, of course, this was... Uh, uh, we were going to record today at like just after the Arsenal match, but I told Matt that I'd needed maybe at least an hour to call off. So uh, lucky we did because that was a crazy game. I don't I don't really remember a North London derby like it. Well, I mean, I do. I mean, there's been ones where Arsenal have gone down two goals uh, 
to nothing and then come back to 5-2 or won two games 5-2 actually in North London derbies uh, similarly Spurs' only victory at the Emirates has been when they were 2-0 down and then uh, winning 3-2 in the end so it's not really um, a surprise seeing these big score lines but maybe the manner of which the the game went and uh, you know there was some controversial refereeing decisions it had the lot right six goals controversial refereeing decisions a Luca Torreira a stunning goal I don't even know what to say anymore about this one I think again of course you, 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 I, I echo everything you're pretty much saying here Petra I think it had it had everything right that this derby demands and and wants right even if you're if I'm a new, in, as a neutral in this game uh, aside from uh, my slight 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 allegiance to Arsenal because of that little guy uh, Lucas Torreira um, when, you know, when I'm looking at this game, I'm thinking this game's going back and forth. I was following a little bit of it at, at the gym. I caught most of it. Um, and then I'm following it on my phone because I know it was Derby Day in England. And I'm looking at this game and I'm saying, like, this is this is what this is what football this is what makes football special these types of games right you had it had everything it had all the ingredients it had the again as you mentioned the refereeing decisions it had the goals the back and forth the momentum swinging had the tempers flare with eric dyer like those are the types of things that you look for in these games it had everything it was it was a special derby as a neutral fan um, I, I do really enjoy the Premier League a bit. I don't have a, I didn't have a skin in the game, if you will, or a stake in this one. But in any case, watching this, it was a real treat. And to see Lucas Torreira score his first Premier League goal, um, special, special player, special performance for him, and really just a good, good uh, result for Arsenal. Again, credit to Unai Emery what he's been able to do thus far at Arsenal. Um, there were some question marks around whether or not he was the guy uh, post Arsene Wenger. Um, we still don't know yet. Obviously, there's a big shoes to fill. There's a lot of pressure on him to succeed. But so far, so good from him. This is a really, really positive result. And this is one that really uh, Arsenal look to build off. Yeah, the celebration from Luca Torreira meant everything to, to every Arsenal fan, I think. And it capped off a brilliant display by him. I think he had like 12 ball retentions, three interceptions, tackles galore uh, he had one shot on the half volley that went just wide it was he's just built for these games and I don't think he's dropped less than a 7 out of 10 for Arsenal since his time in England which is crazy to think and you think lots of players come into the Premier League and they struggle on these uh, with the congested fixtures lists and playing kind of rugged teams away from home nothing phases this guy uh, big game against Liverpool man of the match big game against Tottenham you know rivals who have had the up on Arsenal in the last two seasons um, who are above them in the league table until the victory today he comes up Trump's man of the match and it's just he seems to be getting better and better and I, and I think it, it, needs, it will come to a point where I think we talk, spoke about like this um, in previous episodes, Matt. The guy's only on £50,000 a week. There's going to be a point in time where Raul Sarneni, the um, contract man at Arsenal, oh, I think that's kind of his official title. I'm sure he does more than that. Kind of looks at it and says, well, you know, this guy's our best performing player. Is he going to stick around forever if we just keep him on this money? No, I absolutely agree with you. And I was thinking, you know, it's funny, I was thinking about this um, on, my, on my way home uh, from the gym. I was thinking about this. I was thinking, you know, Torreira's, again, if you go through the timeline of his, his Arsenal uh, career so far, again, it's been obviously very brief, didn't get many opportunities to start, if any, um, in the beginning of the season, really came off, had those 15, 20-minute spells where he looked, he flourished. He was he was everything, every bit as advertised and everything that we've, we've, we've talked about him being. And then, sure enough, once he got that first start, 
he's hit the ground running. He's taken off with the opportunity, and I think he's in the in. I think it also shows what type of what what type of personality is, what type of mentality he has as a player. Typically, when a lot of these players they don't get the minutes they want, or they're not getting the role they want, you know, it can be they can kind of take that maybe ups uh, uh, that the uh, that frustration out on the pitch, and you can really see, and then maybe kind of reflects on their performances. With him, is that he's kind of continued to grind. We've seen all the videos that Arsenal uh, have tweeted out with the training sessions, how hard this guy works, how much dedication he has to his craft, and when he's finally been able to get been able to start from the beginning. We're seeing what type of player he is. We're seeing what type of uh, you know what type of quality he has at such a young age in a brand new league that's never easy to adapt to. How many times have we seen Italian footballers, not Italian footballers, excuse me, but players coming from Italy uh, struggle to to even you know, to play this good at any point in their career in Italy? I mean, uh, in England, let alone do it in the first couple months of the season. So again, a credit to him. Uh, he deserves all the recognition, all the praise, and and he deserved that that moment today at the Emirates in front of the fans celebrating this. This was this was that kind of that breakout. This was that Corona, that defining performance from him. That he officially became a gunner today with that with that goal in the course of the victory for Arsenal. That is the best way to describe it, isn't it? But moving away f- slightly from Luca Torreira, uh, a lot of people, including myself, actually, I thought that Unai Emery might be outfoxed by uh, Mauricio Pochettino today. But um, it, it proved to be the opposite. Although it was a bit of a chess match, Arsenal started with three at the back. Uh, Pochettino started with four at the back, with I think two forwards in Son and Kane, uh, Dali Ali in behind them. But it was just it was just a weird game where it, it did feel like a bit of a chess match, where every twenty minutes felt like a game in itself because you had you know Arsenal at three at the back, and then we went to a four. Uh, three-one-two diamond at one point, and when we did that, uh, Spurs went into a three at the back, and it was just like crazy. So much going on, uh, so much to digest in this one. But I, I really do think this is the game where potentially Unai Emery is taken uh, to a bit more kindly by a lot more Arsenal fans, because as we, as you mentioned, he might still not be the, that guy to um, to fill the shoes of Arsene Wenger, which is crazy to think, considering. Arsenal are nearly 20 games unbeaten now and they're in the top four with very limited resources compared to the teams around them apart from Tottenham so it's very very interesting to see how Arsenal fans from here on in talk about Unai Emery because I think he slowly won them over it's kind of a reflection of Luca Torreira where a lot of Arsenal fans were like who was this guy I think you know Matt for sure that when Arsenal signed Luca Torreira you must have your DMs went crazy so that just kind of shows that the same thing that Arsenal aren't going for the stellar names in um, uh, Unai Emery and Luca Torreira. They're going for the value. And the more of these Luca Torreira signings Arsenal make, and I think a lot more Premier League teams make, I think the better they're going to be off in general because there's less risk because there's less money invested. And there's bigger upside. And I think that um, that a lot more Premier League teams are going to look at that, particularly in, in a market which is massively inflated. I, absolutely, I think you hit the nail on the head too. Is you know, and when you think of a player like Torreira, um, just getting back to him, you know, with the fee that they he they Arsenal brought him in on, thirty million euros split over two installments. I mean, great financial move, obviously, fantastic signing so far. He's proven it on the pitch. But you look at what Torreira has been able to do and how much impact he's able to have in such little time, compared to players who moved to clubs this year on way bigger fees, Fabinho. Nabi Keita. I'm not saying that they aren't good players or they're not quality or they're not Liverpool quality or they could be really good signings at some point. 
But again, Torreira's younger. He's you know acclimating quicker. He's making a larger impact sooner than those two guys. And we're seeing it already. And he's came in for cheaper. I think maybe, I don't know what exactly what the fees are in Fabinho and uh, Nabi Keita were, but they weren't anywhere near what Torreira was. And I think you look at that, again, it speaks volumes to what you just said, is that Arsenal are doing a lot. They're doing really well with limited resources. Um, you know, not maybe buying the big, big expensive player per se. Of course, they did a buy Aubameyang in January. So they did kind of get that big name uh, target or big name attacker that they needed. Um, and of course, they got Lacazette the, the, the previous summer. But Lucas Torreira was kind of a move where it was not under the radar necessarily because I think we talked about it quite a bit and many people thought he was going to be a really good signing but the fact that it was such so cheap for a, a player of his caliber again teams are going with a different model now when they think about their transfer approach right it's no longer buying the 26 27 year old established player and spending 50 60 million yes some teams are doing that but I think a lot of time a lot of teams are going with the route where we're buying a younger player who has more upside we're spending the 30 40 on him and then in a couple years the guy's gonna be worth double that and I think that again that's what Arsenal they kind of nailed it with with Torreira is that they didn't break the bank for a player um, but at the same time they're getting a guy who's a sure thing starter seems like a can't miss player at this point of his career um, although it's still very very early in, early on but what we've seen at Samp what we've seen with Uruguay what we've seen early on with Arsenal he's coachable he still has room to grow all while making a big impact at Arsenal at the right time and when they really need it most yeah versatile as well not to mention played at the right of a diamond in the second or last 25 minutes of today's game which was really impressive and then obviously pushed forward and scored that goal but enough about Torreira and Arsenal next was the Merseyside derby uh, Everton versus Liverpool their stadiums are literally a kilometer away you could literally throw a, a stone between the two uh, and it was really I thought Everton were really impressive. I don't know if you watched the whole game, Matt, but defended so astutely. And I think they could have scored a couple goals as well. They were really unlucky. This was a, one of the most entertaining nil-nils I've watched up until Origi's last-minute winner, which was absolutely ridiculous. And we'll get onto that as the second half of this discussion. But what did you make of it in general? Yeah, I, I, I agree with what you said. I think this was... Uh, Everton did look... Um, like they, 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 they weren't entirely outclassed by Liverpool again of course I think Liverpool um, obviously have the superior side but in any case we all knew what Everton did in this this summer um, new coach uh, they spent a ton of money they got some quality players um, and to kind of at least kind of somewhat narrow the gap between them and the rest of the pack the rest of the elite um, that the Premier League has and I think this was a good test for them to kind of see where hey you know what maybe we're not so far off the off off uh, the, those top teams and yet even with you know, with all the spending they've done you know, I think again, there still has some room to grow for Everton. They 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 show that they can play with and, and compete with uh, big clubs like Liverpool. They did it today, as you just mentioned. Uh, one of the more um, thrilling, more entertaining zero zero games didn't feel like that. Of course, um, we got that crazy finish of the game. But in any case, if you look at the entire package, the whole picture, um, Everton fans should be pretty happy with the performance they've had against uh, against a rival um, in this in in such a. a tough spot to be in because obviously um, Liverpool they've been the talk of the town talk one of the talks of the Premier League uh, making the finals Champions League last year being a, a title contender and then Everton you know obviously spending all that money um, but even then they're really not getting as much uh, chatter much attention that their uh, their, their rivals are so for, for Everton yeah it's a difficult result to take um, especially the way it happened I've never seen anything like that if you guys haven't seen that 
which I don't know how you haven't yet. <laughs> but in any case, it, it was a, a shocking finish, a crazy game. Uh, a good, uh, a fortunate break goes Liverpool's way. But Everton, if you're looking at the entire 90-plus 90, 90 minute performance, I think you have to be pretty pleased with the way um, the way, the, way the guys turned up. In any case, it really depends on how they grow, uh, bounce back from this, right? If it was a 0-0 uh, draw, great result. Uh, the performance was good. Then you could kind of keep this going and move on to the next game and hope to kind of, kind of string along and keep that momentum moving. But when you lose in such a, you know, heartbreaking fashion you really don't know what you're going to get from the guys the next day next game out so that's going to be interesting to see from Everton signed but for Liverpool um it, that's a big break for them two points more than what they were initially expecting to get what um in the dying moments of this game and then they get a goal out of nowhere from Divock Origi off a uh, Jordan Pickford blunder which crazy 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 stuff uh, but then that's just uh that's just English football that's just Darby's in, in general and <laughs> that's why we love this sport if you haven't seen it I'm gonna try and describe it in audio form there is a cross that goes in from uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold it's headed out by an Everton defender it comes out to Virgil van Dijk on the edge of the area and he kind of winds up to volley it towards goal but slices it so badly the ball goes about 30 metres up in the air, bounces on Jordan Pickford's crossbar twice. And as this is happening, as it bounces twice on Jordan Pickford's crossbar, Jordan Pickford is like scrambling all over the line. I don't actually know what he's doing. He's like jumping around, trying to work out where this um, where this ball is going to drop. And as the ball drops, he kind of falls over. I think it hits him. And then Origi heads it in. It's one of the most absurd goals I've ever seen, let alone in a derby that big. It was just absolutely ridiculous. It was like, like a FIFA simulation. I've I've had that count, happen to me countless times um, in a, in any version of many in many of the versions of FIFA throughout the years. <laughs> it just seemed like a kind of a like a freak type of play where um, you know you thought it was going to go out. When I saw Virgil Van Dijk, the kind of uh, you know, launch up, ready to kind of fire on net. I was like, oh, this game, this ball is going to go behind the net. It's going to go out. It's going to be a goal kick, and it's going to be a 0-0 draw. But credit to Divock Origi. Again, I think you go, we go also, we can highlight Jordan Pickford's uh, blunder in this whole thing. Obviously, he's a match winner. He got a big goal. Um, but to, to stick with the play, to finish the play off, to kind of not, you know, to play to the final whistle, um, that's what you need to do. And again, of course, if you, if you do that, you can find yourself in a position to do things like this. If he gave up on that ball, maybe, you know, uh, Pickford hits it, goes back in, and the, when the ball comes down, he catches it, and that's the end of it. And then people are looking at, well, now you got to finish the play. But Divock Origi and even some of the other Liverpool players, they were kind of tracking the ball the entire way through. And then when I saw Pickford get it, I'm like, this ball is going in. Like, this this is going to be a match winner. This is going to be one of the crazier finishes we've seen any game, any you know, club football game this year. And sure enough, that's what we got. So, again, credit to Divock Origi for following up. I believe that was his first goal in more than a year, which is <laughs> what, a, what a time to come and get that Crazy. <laughs> in, a, in the Merseyside Derby. Crazy. Not his first in a Merseyside Derby, though, uh, interestingly enough. But I just want to go back to Everton really quickly. Um, they drew 0-0 at Stamford Bridge last month. Um, they gave Arsenal a tough game when they went to the Emirates. Uh, uh, Arsenal won 2-0 and it was quite a tough game. And I thought if they'd come away from this one, it, it might look to Premier League teams when they host Everton that it's no longer an easy game. And I don't think it was ever an easy game, but I think there was... Um, there was a brief spell where you yeah. were at Everton and you could just clearly see they're a step or two below the yeah. big dogs. Whereas now I think it's like, okay, well... 
we can't take this team that lightly. They're really compact. Uh, Idrissa Gay and Andre Gomez today were outstanding in the middle of the park. Richarlison is leading the line like a number nine who's played there for four or five years and this is his first season ever playing as a forward or as a striker on his own um, I mean he, I thought even Theo Walcott was alright today um, I thought Jordan Pickford made some great saves but you know it's a results business at the end of the day and I think inexperience or experience wasn't on Everton's side if you look through their team there are not that many Premier League experienced players I mean Idrissa Gay's been there a few seasons this is Richarlison's second season in the Premier League um, Andre Gomez's uh, first, I believe. Uh, Yerry Mean is first. Uh, Michael Keane's only second season at Everton. Uh, Luca Digne, first season in the Premier League. Uh, Bernard, first season in uh, Premier League as well, coming from Shakhtar. So that's not easy. I think this Everton team will get better. And what you mentioned about spending the big money, they spent the big money wisely this time. So I think uh, final final comment on Everton is they'll get better. And I think... I'm, I wouldn't be surprised to see this top six turn into a top seven at some point in the next couple of years. No, absolutely. Again, I think, um, you know, you look at certain teams in, in the Premier League and you really start to see how deep this this top part of the table is becoming, right? I mean, again, of course, you know, it's we've all you know, know who the top teams are, even by name, not necessarily by performances each and every year, right? Because look, Manchester United are pretty much struggling. They're a week-to-week team where you really don't know what you're going to be getting. But Everton, again, getting back to them, they look like a team that's, um, they spent wisely. They got a great coach or a coach that I, I rate quite well. Um, and I think that was a big step. Again, I think if we're seeing how, I mean, a lot of coaching changes um, throughout this league or really since the summer. And we, right, you're seeing the impact of how uh, a, a good coach, a quality coach can have um, kind of a dripping effect or a snowball effect on the rest of the guys, right? If you get a good coach, you get the good players, you start to piece everything in. It sounds kind of silly to kind of even make mention of that because um, obviously that goes without saying you need a good coach to win anything or to compete for anything. But yeah, you look at Chelsea. Sorry, you're looking at Arsenal getting Unai Emery, which is never an easy situation to, to put him in, um, replacing Arsene Wenger. He's doing a really good job. You're having Silva, who's doing a good job at Everton, um, amidst all that spending that money. That We've seen that happen many times where they get a new coach. These teams that spend so much money, they struggle. And then in one or two years, they blow it up. They sell a bunch of big key parts. And they want to kind of fall back into the middle of the table or bottom of the table. So credit to Everton for at least um, you know spending the money wisely, appointing a good manager, a manager that can really be here for for several years um, at the very least. Um, and and they're really kind of pushing themselves back into that conversation. Um, I don't think they're going to finish top four. Let's be real. Uh, stranger things have happened, of course. We've, <laughs> I've lived to see Leicester City. I think at five thousand to one odds win their Premier League title. So I'm not going to rule anything out. But I think if you're an Everton fan at this point, you're really just hoping um, this. Year Year, that you kind of see a project that kind of takes shape um, with a good manager, a, a good system, a good core group of players, and then you can kind of push forward um, in the next year or so to really kind of maybe make that next uh, next step or that next leap into the conversation for maybe a dream Champions League spot. Uh, I think that uh, Marcus Silva is a quality coach. I think that he proved it with Watford until his head was turned by Everton and that clearly affected his performances and he was eventually let go. But you know he started so well with Everton and I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised to see him move on to a bigger team in the next couple seasons but um, I'd be really interested to see who Everton invest in in the next uh, three or four transfer windows I think it's going to be exciting times for them Matt I, I know we didn't talk about this before but it's just uh, 
kind of jumped into my head. I was thinking about this today where Meza Ozil didn't play again for Arsenal. The guy's on £350,000 a week. And I was thinking, like, in an ideal world, if you're Unai Emery, you don't really want this guy at your club. But it's so hard to get rid of someone who's like 30 years old at £350,000 a week. Is football, or European football anyway, becoming in a tiny bit way like the NBA where teams are trying to get rid of players with big contracts and they're going to have to give up uh, give them up for less money than they wanted. I'm looking at Arsenal with Mkhitaryan and Ozil now, a combined £570,000 a week. I'm looking at uh, Manchester United now who have, um, you know, uh, Alexis Sanchez on £350,000 a week. They've got uh, Eric Bailly and, and those sorts of players who just don't play on big contracts. And then you look at... Um, uh, the likes of uh, Liverpool as well with, with some of their big contracts. Of, uh, I, I, I wouldn't say they want to get rid of Virgil van Dijk, but he's on about 200 and something pounds a week, uh, thousand pounds a week. If he gets a bad injury and he doesn't get back into form, are, are teams taking massive risks paying these guys this much money? I think I, I was thinking also about Juventus in Serie A with some of the big contracts that they have, uh, particularly Emre Chan, who went from Liverpool. I think he's on uh, nearly 5 million euros post-tax, which is quite a lot, right? Um, even though it's not compared to Ronaldo and Juventus, is it going to become hard for some of these teams to shift some of these players like uh, Ozil, Mkhitaryan? Um, I know Emery Chan's kind of young, but players of that kind of stature in their late uh, 20s, early 30s or on big contracts. And I've just mentioned um, Alexis Sanchez, of course. No, yeah, I think you raise a good point, you know, with this whole contract, uh, you know, discussion. I think... What we're what we've seen um, in previous years, there was kind of this bubble, this bubble effect um, with with regards to European teams or big European teams and their spending pattern. You know, they'll, they'll overpay or they'll overpay the, the wage, um, and, and of course, obviously, they they don't have any issue with with the fee big to get a big time player if they can uh, somehow turn that into uh, silverware or uh, meeting their objectives. But you're looking at teams like now Arsenal, who and it's funny too because we talked about Torreira uh, in Torreira in his you know fifty thousand uh, pound per week uh, wage in comparison to Ozil's three hundred something, right? I'm not by any means comparing the players because Ozil's so accomplished. He's won a World Cup. Um, he's he's you know was was a, a star player at Real Madrid. He was fantastic with Arsenal uh, for most of his career. I think recently again there's kind of an up and down phase for him, but he's getting paid a ton and at thirty years old. Is he's not going to be able to get that anywhere? Most likely, won't be able to get that anywhere else um, other than Arsenal. So if you're if you're Arsenal, right, and you're thinking, well, we have a player that's not really in the plans right now. He's getting paid a ton. He's probably holding us back from making other additional moves that can otherwise help us in the now and for the future that are cost way less. You're in that position where if you're Arsenal and you're thinking, should we probably sell Osla? I mean, is he really going to get much better than what we've seen in previous years? He probably won't. I think he could still be an effective player for Arsenal, but if he's not being used, he's only weighing down the, your wages. And now all of a sudden you're thinking, if we're going to sell this guy, we have to probably take a haircut on the fee that we're going to get back from him. And I think that's a pretty decent trade-off if you're Arsenal because at this point you need to get players who are going to make an impact. I understand the big name and you're probably thinking, you know, uh, oh, well, he's a he's a big name and you look at his CV, well, I'm gonna, we're going to demand big money for him. you got to understand, it's it's a we've seen this in sports, right? It's a it's a supply-demand. It's, it's a... Um, I've been seeing it in baseball. You know, I know this is a football podcast, but in baseball, right, you have the big these players with these ten-year contracts, which is guaranteed money. Um, a little bit different than football, of course. 
these teams are, are giving their unwanted uh, contracts that are unwanted players to teams that want to contend but in exchange you're giving us prospects or you're giving us uh, a little bit more financial um, flexibility and or relinqu relinquishing some of the uh the tension on our on our on our finances by doing so so i think it's interesting to see some of those things um i don't know if that's like, necessarily going to happen we don't see those they're two different sports in the way they operate in that regard but I, I agree. I think again, if you're Arsenal and you're looking at your, you know these two players who really aren't making much of an impact for a team who's doing really well without them, you're looking at the picture and saying this team's doing way better with these with the guys they have, and you got five almost half half a uh, 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 half a million on, in wages on, sitting on the bench. There's got to be something in, in in Arsenal's mind where they're thinking, you know, maybe we can get rid of these guys. We can kind of uh, look elsewhere. Uh, it's going to be tough though because it, you know, obviously it's it's all players on all parties have to agree to uh, part ways. So when you're getting paid that much money, it's never easy to convince a player to leave because he knows if he goes somewhere else, he may not get that. So I, it's going to be interesting to see what how this kind of you know uh, transpires at Arsenal with these two players because they're big name players. Obviously, uh, Mikita Ryan is represented by Mino and Raiola. Um, so obviously um, he's going to be pro he's probably upset he probably wants more playing time and Mino um, Marlola as his agent um, can probably finagle and get him a good deal but to get that type of wage I, I don't see that happening anytime soon especially with his drop in production really since um, that big big season at Dortmund earned him that big move to Manchester United and as for Ozil um, it's a weird spot I think it's uh, I think that this relationship is probably going to be coming to an end very soon not January, of course, but I think in the summer I wouldn't be surprised to see him leave or maybe the year after. I just don't think you can keep this guy around that much longer if you're not going to use him because he's he's taking up too much money and it's it's he's not getting any younger. Yeah, for sure. I think before Arsene Wenger left Arsenal, I think in either his last season or second last season, he talked about how we're going to see more and more players uh, stay until the last year of their contracts. Why? Because they're getting massive contracts like the likes of Alexis Sanchez. Do you think Alexis Sanchez is going to leave 500k on the table a week? No way. That's guaranteed money. He's not going to leave that. Um, do you think, uh, I mean, we had it when, um, of course, Benucci went to AC Milan. I forgot what you guys were paying him, but that was pretty big money for AC Milan at the time. Like, uh, I think you were paying six million uh, post-tax euros, and that was the the biggest in your squad. Yeah, so like, and it, it was lucky that the way things transpired that you could get him off your books because if you guys didn't want him, that was a lot of money being spent on a thirty-year-old at that time. Yeah, no, I agree. I think again, you're going to start to see again with all the analytics, all these you know kind of. Uh more advanced metrics uh, with all these, a lot of these clubs and where they operate, the way they approach the transfer market and making certain decisions regarding their, their, their structuring of their team. You're going to start to see a lot of these, these clubs go in different routes. I mean, we're seeing it now where a lot of these teams are, they're looking at them like, I can spend, I'd rather take the risk on a guy who's going to give me five or six, six good more years. Um, and I'm, I'm really paying a premium. I'm paying more for what he's going to give me versus paying, a, a, a ton of money for a player based off what he's already given me and I think that's where the difference is because I've seen it in several other sports as well but football I can really start to see that dynamic switch in that favor where people look and you're saying, you look at it I mean 28's not really old right if you look at a 20 year old player I mean we're seeing like Jorginho's 26 maybe going to be 27 soon people but clubs are starting to go with the younger players they're starting to go with the younger players with less wages and then eventually they build them up into these big time players and if they sell them they can at least sell them and they get that money back and more than the money back so i think that's what how teams are approaching it, it now of course with the exception of a couple of clubs who really just don't have any 
um, who have any don't have a care in the world with how they who how much they pay for players um, and wages and how much they pay for players and transfer fees because they can afford it like the Real Madrids and, and all these clubs. But I think you're starting to see a lot of these big time uh, uh, teams and these these directors and these uh, you know owners change the way they approach the market, change the way they approach that one initial signing, that one big signing. Is, again, we touched upon it with Dembele. We touched upon it with even Pulisic in the previous episode with Alex. You look at it, 60, 70 million for a guy like Pulisic. Is it really that much in this market, in this era of football? Maybe not because he's so young and you're, you're going to have a way more years of, of quality football left in him versus putting that 60, 70 million in a guy who's... Uh, Still very good, but maybe has two, three, if that. So the teams are a little bit more cautious with the way they do that, and it's going to be interesting to see what Arsenal do with um, Oso Mikitaran and really the, how they approach um, the market moving forward. Because obviously, as we just mentioned with Torreira, they've hit, they they struck gold with that one, and maybe they look to do that with other players. Yeah, I think everyone's going to be looking for that next to Torreira. Um, they're going to be looking for players who provide them value in that under 25 category who can slot into your team straight away and i feel that we are going to see a bit of a shift in the way teams are doing transfer business i mean you even look at manchester city investing in the likes of bernardo silva look at the profile of player manchester city have been buying in the in the last two seasons Leroy sane um laporte uh, Gabriel Jesus, John Stones, uh, Ed- Edison. All young players, Edison. what do they all have in common? They're not 27, 28-year-old players, you know, like like Alexis Sanchez, like a uh, Mikita Ryan. They're guys that are going to have tons more years and it could be big-time pieces of the puzzle now, but for really multiple years. And that's what you really want in order to build consistency and continuity and, and continued success at some of these clubs. That's the blueprint. Is getting guys who are they can continue to grow with the team. They're not having that immediate pressure to be a superstar player, but when they do get their minutes, they show their talent, they show their worth, and eventually they start to grow with the team. Like again, Sterling, like Sane, like Stones, and you start to see those are fundamental players of what uh, City are right now and what Pep is trying to build. For sure, for sure. Uh, we'll move on a little bit here, Matt, uh, to your, to a team dear to your heart, of course, uh, AC Milan. Ibrahimovic isn't going away. And uh, to add to that, speaking of 30-plus players, Fabregas has also been linked to AC Milan. So what are your thoughts, considering we've just spoken about teams going for these young players? Is this kind of a stopgap thing for AC Milan, especially considering the rumours that Higuain might st- might not stay permanently? Well, I think with, you know, with starting off with Ibrahimovic, because it's always an interesting one. We've talked about it, uh, I think, at the previous episode of the one before that. Um, where I would be open to it, I think again for the the short term, it's a good option. I think um, you can keep you give him another option up front. Gutronic uh, could benefit from having um, him and Iguain to really learn from, which um, you know, again, of course, that always helps. And I think again, if Ibrahimovic, if I'm if I'm correct or I'm, if the numbers that I'm hearing are correct, a couple million, uh, I think maybe 2.5, 2.6 million euro wages for um, the, this loan that he would be getting. Um, which would be a six-month loan um, with an option, if it, it, assuming he does well and assuming uh, both parties want to extend this relationship, uh, the second relationship that they've had, rather, a little bit further, it could be another full season. I think it's a pretty good risk for Milan to take. Um, Leonardo, Maldini, Gattuso, they all have a good relationship with Ibrahimovic, so I think they're all on the same page, and I think Mina Raiola has a really 
a stronger relationship or a little more cohesive uh, bond with this current uh, management versus the one that he had with Fassone and Mirabelli. I mean, we all saw what happened with the Donnarumma situation where uh, Mirabelli and Raiola kind of went back and forth. Um, Raiola had more respect and more seemed to have a little bit more of a, a, a good relationship with Fassone, but it was a really toxic situation. And I think, again, having these guys like Leonardo Maldini in the mix, in the fold, I think people, are, the, you know, agents are looking at um, Milan and, and Raiola specifically is, is a little bit more respected back to where they were once were, again, of course, on the pitch, it's a little bit different. They still have to have uh, proved that they can be a top four team and really make that um, next leap back into uh, where we all know they're capable of being um, throughout their entire history as a perennial uh, powerhouse in Italy and in Europe. But if you look at this, I think Ibrahimovic, I think there's a really good chance that this does happen. I just think, again, Ibrahimovic, he wants to return to Milan or he wants to return uh, back to uh, a big league. Um, no disrespect to Major League Soccer. It's just not quite there yet at this moment. Um, I think, again, he did really well with Galaxy, and there is still a slight possibility he does stay. But I think, again, that, that they're all signs point to him kind of returning to Milan, hopefully helping uh, my club, Milan, get back to the Champions League. But um, as for Fabregas, this is an interesting one. And the reason why I say this is a very interesting one is that – so. Let's wind the clock back to last year where they had uh, pretty much three players at this position um, on the books, right? They had Montolivo, who's been with the club for several years or many years, um, has underwhelmed for the most part. He had a one or one year, maybe two good years, um, and everything else has been kind of uh, pretty pretty crummy, uh, pretty uh, left much to be desired. And then you have Lucas Biglia, who was a um, he was playing pretty well for Milan his first year, all things considered. Uh, that, but in any case, he had a big injury. He's out now. Bakayoko is coming in from Chelsea on loan for this entire season, initially started off pretty poorly, has caught form and caught form at the right time and when Milan need it most, he's doing tremendously well. Um, it still doesn't look like Montalivo is going to be used at any point, which would be that second Regista option. Looks like maybe uh, Jose Mauri could get some decent minutes here. So I think there is a window of opportunity or a window of need, rather, for Milan to maybe look at Fabregas. Assuming that Chelsea and Fabregas are just going to go part ways completely um, and Milan can get Fabregas on a, a really uh, low, low, uh, relatively inexpensive, excuse me, uh, loan deal where he can at least help them this year maybe there's a opportunity to extend it for another year but I think again it's going to be everything has to kind of align there because you're talking about a player who has played for Arsenal he has won at Arsenal he's played for Barcelona he's won titles everywhere he's still a big name player maybe not a big uh, a player with a big role at the moment I think that's the best way to put it so that's going to be a more interesting one to see. It's something that's maybe a little bit less likely to happen, but there's still a window for it because I think Leonardo Maldini and, and the rest of the management are, are clear that they have to make reinforcements. They can't just get Ibrahimovic, Paqueta, and let that be it because they're seeing what the effects are of having all these injuries. They, I think they're going to be a little bit more uh, proactive in how they approach the market more than previous years. And I wouldn't be surprised to see if they could, get, if they could work out something with Fabregas where it's a really cheap loan deal. Maybe he does pretty well. They keep him for another year. Montalivo leaves. Uh, Jose Mauri leaves. Bakayoko's loan is not renewed, or the option is not picked up, rather. I think it's like 30, 32 million, give or take. Um, and then maybe they go with uh, Bilia Fabregas as like their two options deep. So uh, that's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds. But um, yeah, I think regardless, Milan are going to have a very active January transfer window. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping they can get the right, right and necessary additions um, to kind of stay in that top four race and to eventually pull that off. Yeah, I think Milan, it's all about the midfield at the moment. Their mid or goalkeeper situation is 
good. I think when Donnarumma matures a bit more, he's going to turn into a great goalkeeper. Their defence is, although very injured at the moment, is actually quite good on paper when you write out who they have in, in those defensive positions. Maybe having those squad players of a slightly higher calibre than Zapata and Abate. Um, but, you know, it, you, you can't have everything, right? Uh, but yeah, the midfield options and potentially up front if Higuain does, or the, for some reason it doesn't um, end up as a, as a permanent deal, then uh, we might see them invest all over the place, really. But uh, it remains to be seen what happens there. Uh, we'll move on. Uh, last topic, Matt, uh, our dear friend Thierry Henry is not having a good time at Monaco. What's happening here? No, 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 not at all. Uh, the best person to ask a question about Thierry Henry is you as an Arsenal fan. Obviously, we all knew what uh, Thierry Henry accomplished in an Arsenal uniform. How does it feel for you knowing that there was links between links with him um, I don't know how firm of links they are, soft or firm uh, links they had in the summer, that he was possibly going to be a contender to coach Arsenal. Now, I mean, there was other teams he was mentioned with as well. Of course, he, he wound up coaching uh, Monaco as we're talking about it here. How does it make you feel as an Arsenal fan, a lover of Thierry Henry for all he accomplished on the pitch, to see him struggling at Monaco and struggling so poorly and doing really just uh, shockingly bad um, at Monaco and, and really in his first major uh managerial gig how does it sit with you uh, one could look at it as a a dodged bullet but i think it would be unfair to kind of judge him on these games particularly with the i've never ever seen you know i've been watching football for quite a while now and i've been involved in football playing it whatever uh football fan for ages i've never seen a team that has had this many injuries to first team players as monaco have this season if you think about ronnie lopez their best player is been out for the last three months as soon as he got injured they were down the drain um a lot of their defenders are injured uh first team keeper injured for a while falcao been in and out the side um it's tough it's tough to contend with and for this to be his first managerial appointment to come in and like lose every game but one which they won uh midweek in the ucl against club bruges it's it's incredibly hard but I do think I don't know. Like he was, he was uh, looked at going to Aston Villa at one point, uh, and then of course linked to Arsenal along with Patrick Vieira before he went over to Nice and uh, Mikel Arteta, also a former player. The thing about Thierry Henry, though, when you hear him speak, whether it be on Sky Sports or in interviews after he stopped playing, he's obsessed with football in the same way that Pep Guardiola is. He looks at every detail in its most minute individual bit and you can tell this is what this guy lives for and so for him to struggle this badly it's kind of surprised me but maybe it surprised me more that Monaco players don't seem to be as up for playing as for like uh, you know not only is an Arsenal legend he's also a um a France legend he's also a guy that went through the Monaco academy and ended up being one of the world's best players one of the best players ever so Monaco players especially those he's handed debuts to and youngsters that he's given time to they should be looking up at this guy being like wow I'm being coached by one of the greats the same way that some of those Real Madrid players took to Zidane the respect and admiration they had for him I thought we'd see a bit more of that but to see him struggle to this extent in well, let's face it, one of the poorer leagues in the top five European um, comps. 
it's 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 really difficult. I mean, it, you see him losing to Club Bruges three zip at one point uh, a few weeks ago. That was crazy. Like you're losing to a team from Belgium that badly, and you know it, it's it's tough because on one side I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, first coaching job, major injuries, but on the other hand, him not being in to inspire is quite worrying considering the caliber of guy that he is. No, I, I think I think that's you make some really good points about Thierry Henry again. Well, there's a lot of connections here, with, especially with Monaco, right? I mean, you know, came up through Monaco system, a France legend, as you just mentioned, um, such a, a revered, a well accomplished player um, throughout his entire career, wherever he played, right? Barcelona, Monaco, uh, briefly at Juventus, Arsenal. I mean, we, we can't speak any any more highly of this guy, but you know, it's it's kind of it's not that it's surprising. I think, again, the results, yes, you look at them. It's surprising to see a team that has, uh, you've known in previous years as having so much quality, so much young talent, uh, struggling this much regardless of the coach. But when you throw in the injuries, when you throw in a manager who has uh, no experience, pretty much little to no experience, I think his previous job was, um, was he like a Belgium international? I think he was like an assistant or something like that. He was a very small role where he really wasn't as hands-on with you know, the decision-making with the players and the tactics and all that stuff. He was just kind of part of the system, part of the group. Do you see him, now you see him, I, in many ways you can kind of compare it to what we saw with, um, yes, Zidane, obviously, but even in, 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 the, in the past several years with some of the Milan players who are former players who have won everything with the club to finally get that first coaching job with the team and you saw all of a sudden it's kind of disheartening to see some of the players, the younger ones specifically, not take to the manager. Whatever with people in Zaghi, right? That was his team up in the Milan Primavera to coaching Milan. And it was kind of frustrating to see because as a Milan fan, I loved him so much as a player. But to see him struggle, it was kind of clear that he just wasn't getting through to these guys. And the, th- the biggest thing for me when I see the Thierry Henry situation at Monaco is that there's some managers that, you know what, the first job they're not going to click. They're not going to do well. The circumstances are obviously difficult for him right now, as you just mentioned with all the injuries. And not to mention having to step right in, manage these injuries, uh, continually try at least to stay relevant in Ligue 1, but also play Champions League games, which has a lot of pressure on you as well. Thierry Henrique, uh, you, you hope that the, the, the Monaco fans and, and you know a lot of the, you know, the, the uh, fans of Thierry Henry as a player you know, across Europe, across the world, don't turn on him or kind of criticize him too much to the point where they forget what he accomplished as a footballer. And I think that was kind of one of the more difficult things for me to take as a Milan fan when I saw, you know, people kind of pointing pointing fun and making jokes of it about Inzaghi or even Seydorf when they struggled as a manager. We all know they're great football minds, but sometimes it's just not a right fit. You need to kind of step aside, maybe make a you know, take a different role, take a different job somewhere else to finally put it all together. As you mentioned, Henri, you can see he loves football. This is his life. It's There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But again, the circumstances are very difficult for him. I would hope that at the very least, he could finish. Um, he gets the rest of the season. He could finish strong. Maybe they say, you know what, we're going to give you another season. We're going to start with you the next season. I don't know. I think the big, the biggest thing that I look at Monaco with is they're a team that changes so often year to year. I mean, how many players have they been uh, rated of? You know, when they had that deep run in the Champions League, Silva, Mendy. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. At some point, you weren't you you can't stay top two, top three compete with PSG, who keep a core group of star players intact every year and add to it. 
So I think that's also a little bit unfair for us to expect Thierry Henry, knowing how great he was as a player, how uh, a great of a mind he is, a football mind he is, to kind of come into such a difficult and dire situation at Monaco and pick up the pieces and be a, just a great manager and have success immediately. Yes, as you mentioned, it, football is a business, is a results-based business, results business, and he's not getting them. But I think you also have to look at the bigger picture. And I also kind of some, I hate to keep bringing it back to Milan, but with Cattuso, so many injuries. They didn't spend. They didn't get a ton of new players this past offseason or past summer. He's in top. He's in a couple points off second. He's in fourth right now, with all the injuries. Being a pretty relatively new manager in his first full season at the club, I think to, to change it's it's probably going to do Monaco more harm than good, in my opinion. To continuously change the structure of the team, change the manager year to year, than if you were to give Thierry Henry the full summer to give me get his group of players, kind of implement his system, his philosophy, have the entire year to train with these guys, get to know them, get to connect with them on a little bit better level. And then if you say it's not working, then you can make that move. But to kind of just say, well, he's not doing it, he's not doing it with the players he has, so we got to make a move. I don't think Monaco are really um, well positioned to the point where They've had a track record in history saying, well, we want to win right now, but this is what we demand. I think they'd be a little bit patient with Thierry Henry, in my opinion, out of respect of, again, what, what, he, what he accomplished as a footballer. But, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty alarming to see that it's been this bad. I think I don't think anyone really expected this. I do think he'll stay on, and I think he'll, he'll get the chance. It's going to be interesting to see him against Patrick Vieira. I think it's midweek or next week where Monaco come up against Nice. I think... Oh, actually, I did see today that uh, Ronnie Lopez, well, I was talking about Monaco's kind of talisman before he got injured. I think he had the most League One goals uh, along with Florian Tolvan at some point in 2018 before he got injured. He's just signed a contract extended into 2022. So he was a guy whose contract was ending in 2020, I believe. So that's a big win for them. So this is something that Monaco are looking at in terms of tying down their best assets. This is the guy that used to play for Manchester City, who will probably do a profile on at some point when he maybe comes back for injury. But um, it is positive to see that Monaco may be looking to protect themselves a bit more. I, I think it was they, they didn't make the correct signings as well in the summer. Um, I think they needed a few more like uh, Yuri Tielemans, who, who's done quite well for them this season, or has been one of their better players. Uh, Jemison has also been quite good, one of their centre-backs. But um, Matt, staying in France, I actually talked to uh, Mohamed Ali all about Nicola Pepe. Okay, and on today's episode, we're going to be profiling Nicola Pepe, the Lille forward, who's had a smashing start to the season. And to help me out here, I'm joined by Mohamed Ali, who is a writer and analyst who's currently living over in Shanghai. So, Mohamed, why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners? Uh, yeah. Hi, um, Petri. Thanks for, thanks for inviting me on. Um, uh, some of you might know sort of my acerbic takedowns of French football on Twitter. Um, I've worked with uh, Gold before. I currently do a lot of work with French Football Weekly and get French Football News as well. Uh, so, yeah, I've definitely been uh, analysing and sort of watching not only my beloved Marseille team, but also French Football as a whole for the last uh, about six, seven years on Twitter. <laughs> what makes you such a massive Marseille <laughs> fan? How did you get into that? Uh, that's a tough question. Um, well, I mean, I fell in love with them quite a long time ago, uh, it's been now 13, 12, 13 years uh, since watching um, sort of, uh, it was actually a Bolton Marseille game in the UEFA Cup back in uh, 2006, <laughs> I believe. And it's just, it was just completely different to what I saw anything else on TV. Um, and since then, I was, you know, following them a lot more. And uh, I've been very, very fortunate to not only go over 
uh, to watch the games also fall in love like a lot more deeply and uh, and now it goes strength to strength and actually working with the club as well and wow uh, these these days so like it's, it's been it's been a very good very good ride <laughs> amazing one of my colleagues is a massive marseille fan so uh i know how passionate you guys are uh, but we're, we're here to talk about nicola pepe today um why don't you talk a, a bit about how well Lille have done considering all their financial difficulties in previous seasons how have they done so well uh this season second in Liga, and how pivotal has nicola pepe been to that rise i mean yeah it's a good it's a good question actually because uh to me it's, it's a bit of a shock um, to see them doing so well, they're actually currently second, um, higher than uh, you know, Lyon, Marseille, and Monaco are not doing well at all. Um, they've they've you know won eight of their first thirteen games, and just to see them being such a cohesive unit and racking up, I mean not only the wins but also very very impressive. They you know sort of hit Marseille, Saint-Étienne, and, and Rennes for three, um, and they're all they're very very difficult challenges. Um, and it's just it's, it's it's an amazing turnaround for a club that were in severe disarray early on in the year. So at the end of last year, I was at the Velodrome in Marseille when uh, Marseille beat them by five goals. Um, and I sort of saw Christophe Gaultier in the in the in the press conference after the game, and and it just looked literally a bit without ideas, very crestfallen. The team were shipping goals left, right, and centre. Players, including Nicola Pepe, were just sort of out of their depth a little bit, and um, and then out, you know, sort of off the pitch, there were talk of uh, administrative relegation, funds that won't be available, um, you know, just just a lot of lot of problems on and off the field. So to see that um, sort of dissipate, and then for them to shoot up the table, uh, bringing in very very interesting players such as Jonathan Bambas, Loic Remy, who's having a bit of a renaissance, Jose Font. Uh, in, in defence, and for them to look like a completely different team, and now there's no, no, you know, there's no longer talk about financial instability and, uh, you know, uh, possible possible sanctions and the like. And they've become a real credible threat, and I wouldn't be surprised if they end up in the top three um, and hold on to that spot later on in the year. Well, yeah, it's certainly amazing, just because. As you mentioned, the squad wasn't exactly revamped. It was more a shrewd few signings in certain positions. You mentioned Jonathan Bamba there. He's had a stunning start to the season. But Nicola Pepe last season, 13 goals and four assists. This season, he's already got eight goals and five assists, and we're not even at Christmas. So how much has he improved, and how surprising is it to see him do this well? Um, I'll put that down to uh, also the fact that you know Lille have sort of turned it around a little bit under Christophe Gaultier, who's really brought the best out of not only Pepe, but the rest of the team. Um, under Marcelo Bielsa, who signed Nicola Pepe at the beginning of the last season, um, because of um, perhaps, you know, there weren't any rigid options up front. So you saw that uh, Pepe was played up front in sort of a, uh, you know, a position that's not really familiar to him. So he wasn't very good at all for the la- for the first half of the season and going into uh, the beginning of the year. Uh, but when Christoph Goltier came in towards the end of towards the end of the campaign, he struck about what six or seven goals, playing again on the right wing, um, being in a familiar position, and also just sort of being allowed to express himself, being allowed to stretch the play under the tactics that Christoph Goltier brought in, and that sort of you know sort of accelerated um, that phase uh, going on this season. You know, they play with a solid 4-2-3-1. 
uh, Bamba on one side and Pepe on the other, they're allowed to sort of attack at full intensity, at full speed, stretch the play um, with the players uh, that are, are sort of around them. And that's just sort of worked to his benefit. He's, he's the, the sort of play that Lille have developed are, it brings out the best in Pepe, I believe. So I think that's the key thing that's allowed him to sort of produce the performances that he has uh, this time around. And, and as a player, what kind of uh, attacker is he? How would you describe his style of play? Well, he's, you know, first of all, I think, you know, you could, you could say that he's a very, very, very fast player. He's very good at dribbling. If you look at his dribbling statistics, uh, they are one of the highest in the French league, at least not in Europe. Um, he's, 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 he's pacey. He's able to, you know, hold on to the ball very, very well. He's very strong, upper body strength. Um, to, you know, sort of hold off defensive challenges is, is, is really unique. Um, he's, you know, for, for, what, for what he's worth, he's improved a lot in, um, in sort of his attacking game because obviously it's easy to say, you know, a player that's able to run with the ball and sort of beat a man, but a player that can't deliver a ball uh, sort of scuppers the attacking, uh, sort of the attacking chance. And that's something he's really, really developed. If you look at the Pepe now and the Pepe in 2016-17 uh, with uh, Angers, uh, this is something that he's really, really developed. He's picked up a lot of assists um, over the past couple of uh, cu- past couple of weeks. So you can see, in 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 general, this is a player that's developed his game very, very well. And you mentioned his dribbling ability. There, he's so tough to defend against because he he's kind of both footed, isn't he? He's he's both footed, but I think sort of the value of having a very, very good left foot while playing on the right wing. You know, he's he's sort of the inverted winger type. Loves to cut in. So defenders really have a, you know, defenders who really have a big problem against them, specifically, in, you know, in in France, where Lille tend to play a high intensity game. Um, so that sort of really worked, really worked well for them this season. Mm-hmm. And and if you had to compare him to a to a player that maybe listeners would be more familiar with, who would you compare him to? Oh, it's it's, it's hard to, <laughs> as you said before, it's hard to sort of. <laughs> pin down the uh, uh, resemblance, etc. But one one player that I like to sort of compare him to is, uh, you know, and I think Arsenal fans might appreciate this is Pierre Emerick Aubameyang, mm. not only because they do share the same qualities in terms of you know very fast players who are able to dribble, who have a have a keen eye for goal and not afraid to sort of um, you know get stuck in in the final third with 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 their pace and with their dribbling ability, but also the fact that sort of the career path to date has sort of followed the same. You look at um, you know Aubameyang, who who wasn't really uh, going anywhere at Lille. Um, in, in one instance, back in uh, back a couple of years ago, and then went on to Saint-Étienne under Galtier, who changed the tactics, who changed sort of the development to bring out the best qualities. And under Galtier, he became a very fearsome attacker at Saint-Étienne, and then went on to pastures new outside of outside of France. And this is something that's definitely happened to Nicolas Pepe. So that's you know that's something that I definitely like to. Compare with them with because obviously it's a very defined career path. Yeah, very strong comparison there. Big compliment to Nicola Pepe. I, I, this is a weird one. I once compared him to Yannick Balassi, in a way, just in in the manner in which he dribbles and and being quite both footed and just so kind of herky jerky in his motions when he is dribbling. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, it's so hard to predict what he's going to do, which makes him such a dangerous forward, doesn't it? That is a good point. Yeah, absolutely. If you saw, I think, 
I went and watched him play against Marseille a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it was, was not a very good result for us. You know, on the back end of a 3 0 defeat, he was very electric. Uh, sort of the wing backs did not know how to contain him. The defenders looked very silly against him uh, because of those cutthroats, sort of dribbling, you know, turning at, at any opportunity at any second. Sort of really did bamboozle our back line. So that's something he's definitely developed. You know, the teams do have to keep, you know, I would say two eyes rather than one um, on him. Uh, when he's at his best, when he's at his best, and when they're playing that high-intensity game, it's not only Pepe. It's the, you know, the fact that he has players around him like Ikone, like Bamba, who also bring out the best in him. Who are also able to sort of give Pepe the freedom and the ability to sort of dictate uh, the play. Because you have to, you have to also remember that one big flaw of uh, his, his game is perhaps his uh, lack of sort of defensive uh, focus. Mm. Um, which has sort of worked well, to be honest. You know, right now that Lille have just, you know, they've searched up the table. They're they focused. They're they're counting on him in the front line to develop, to develop chances, to take those chances to score the goals, and that's obviously worked well. But you know, the, the defensive side of things is something that's dogged Pepe's game for a very long time. Um, but then again, you know, advantage is that he has the players on hand who are good in those. Um, in those uh, fields, so that you know he's able to he's able to focus on the other side of the game. So mm. certainly that talisman tag has has worked to great effect with him. And in terms of his stature, he's he's not exactly a small guy. He's quite uh, leggy and quite strong uh-huh. as well, which is probably why he's being linked to the Premier League quite a lot, isn't it, Mohammed? Exactly. You know, it's, it's all about thing when it comes to the Premier League and all about French imports. They're looking for players who are able to sort of. Um, manage and sort of dictate uh sort of play and able to you know compete with the the, the physicality as i like to say of, of the english game so uh, you know if he's able to he's able to hold his own and he has done in france he is very you know strong on the ball he is very as you said very leggy um, and very pacey then that obviously bodes well to the characteristics of the english game if he ever does make a move and in your opinion, where could you see him fitting in best? Is it the Premier League? Is it kind of the same trajectory as Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and taking that smaller step towards a Dortmund? Uh, what's what's your thinking on this? Oh, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a tough question. I mean, obviously, I, for me personally, I like to see him in Germany. I like to see him in Germany because um, you know, attacking play over there and sort of the... I think his characteristics are able to you know, come out well there. The fact that he's really, really pacey on the ball, the fact that defensive contribution doesn't seem to be uh, as big a thing perhaps in Germany. I mean, obviously it's very important in every, every club, but uh, in the Premier League, there's just a sheer 90-minute uh, you know, intensity of required of each player. Uh, might see him sort of miss out. It's something that plagued Florian Tolga, for example, at Newcastle a couple of years ago and other players who sort of don't track back as much as they should. Um, but maybe that's something that's perhaps not uh, primary in, in, in other leagues. Uh, but then the fact that, you know, it's he's he's a, he's a fantastic dribbler. He's a fantastic uh, runner on the ball and able to stretch a play and a great attacker in general. Um, so perhaps, you know, perhaps in Germany, this is something that might, pay off or in Spain mm, yeah um, particularly. that's why I prefer him but I, definitely I think you're right in saying that if he was to mirror 
Aubameyang, you see Alassane player doing really, really well mm. in, in, in Germany at the moment. It's something that you could replicate for sure. Especially as Bayern Munich will probably be in the, the market for a winger come the summer. Dortmund, you never know who's going to leave them. And uh, they've got the track record of improving the likes of Osmane Dembele as a winger, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang from the wing to up front. So Nicola Pepe is a player that I think you're right. Dortmund and Bayern will probably both be looking at them uh, at, at him but then again you've got the likes of Arsenal Chelsea Manchester United potentially oh. Man City who who all need all need a wide man so it's going to be really interesting to see where he goes but uh Mohammed I think we've we've uh we've taken up enough of your time uh this afternoon or uh I think it might be evening in Shanghai uh, <laughs> um where can where can our listeners find out more about you well, he stays on my Twitter page, I guess. There's not much uh, There's not much else. But obviously, I'm more than welcome to answer any questions and uh, um, and also any of the comments regarding him or any other player. That's absolutely more than welcome. Awesome. You can follow him at Muhammad Ali underscore 93. Uh, thanks so much for being on, Mohamed. Great to hear about Nicola Pepe, someone who's on the radar of many clubs in and around Europe and also might be able to be prized away in January considering Lille's financial troubles. Uh, Matt, do you know much about Nicola Pepe? I, to be honest with you, I don't. I was, I was, that's one of the biggest pleasures I have doing this podcast is that there's a lot of players I do know about. We've touched upon several um, from, my, from my neck of woods, my preferred league, my favorite league, Serie A, Giovanni Simeone, Moise Kane, uh, Piontek, just to name a few. But it's always great to have um, the, the experts on the players on the specific leagues come on, give us their insight, give us the know-all on certain players. Um, and it's great to have Mohamed come in and give us the, 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 the know-all and the, the inside detail on what type of player Nicolas Pepe is and can be moving forward for any type of big club that takes a, uh, a big move uh, or a big leap after him. And again, I think that's what makes uh, a podcast like this so special is that we like bringing the experts on. We don't claim to know everything about every player, every league. What we do know, we obviously share. We give, us our, we give you our opinions, our thoughts, our insight. But when we bring those experts on, you know you're getting the best of the best um, discussion and, and really uh, detailed analysis of a player. And that's ultimately what our goal is to do, what these player profiles and these player focuses on a week-to-week basis. Mm-hmm, definitely. Well well said. Very moving. I've, I've not got uh, much to say on that one. <laughs> where, can, where, can, where can people find out more about you? Twitter, uh, at Matt underscore Santangelo. Um, of course, any type of updates we have with the podcast, I'm sharing them on uh, my personal account. I know I do a little bit of social work. Me and uh, Patrick do uh, kind of tag team the social duties for the State of Play pod so you guys can maybe can pick out or distinguish between who's tweeting what. Uh, of course, the Lucas Torreira one, you could definitely know that was me today. Uh, but yeah, you guys can follow me on Twitter at Matt underscore Santangelo for my written work, um, GIFs, banter, um, occasional Periscope videos on post-match reactions like I did today. And um, anything that I'm new that I'm going to be working on, I will make sure to uh, inform you there. Mm, yeah, definitely. Well, you never know who's going to be posting these Luca Torreira gifts these days, especially as he's at Arsenal. <laughs> uh, but you can follow me at Pet Berisha, P-E-T-B-E-R-I-S-H-A. And you can follow us at State of Play Pod, P-O-D, on Twitter. And you can email us, stateofplaypod at gmail.com, if you have any inquiries about collaboration or sponsorship or any of those good things. Uh, yeah, do subscribe. Do leave us those reviews. Uh, love reading them. Means the world to us. Uh, Waking up and reading those reviews is, is a great feeling isn't it matt 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I love seeing the feedback. Yeah, there was a couple of people that gave us a, uh, some love, uh, or a couple, I believe today or the, a couple of days ago. So we really do appreciate that. Again, leave us some reviews, uh, rate us, subscribe, do all that stuff. Also, I don't know if you've mentioned this, Pet, uh, Petrit. Um, people obviously can find us on Apple Podcasts, um, you know, Fireside, but we have uh, recently been uh, approved for Spotify. So I know you guys are really Finally. familiar with, um, and you guys love your Spotify for your music and stuff. But definitely give us a look on there as well for those um, for those new episodes, and be sure to uh, tell your friends. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Pass the pot along. Pass the pot along. But that's been another episode of State of Play. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. <laughs>